So here's a little appetizer to get us started. This is kind of a, a crazy little story. You'll remember when we left off, Elisha was just hitting his stride. Elijah is still alive, but he's slowing down and doesn't get out much anymore. But their school of prophets has grown so large that they need to move to a bigger place. So Elisha and the prophets go down near the Jordan and begin cutting trees. And as one of the men is working, his iron axe head comes loose and falls into the Jordan River. He cries, oh, no, I borrowed that. And Elisha says, where did it fall in? The man shows him. And Elisha cuts a stick, throws it into the water at the same place. And the axe head floats to the surface. The man scoops it right up out of the water. So this is one of those stories that you can choose to believe or not. Um, What you need to think about is why is this story in here? Why was this legend preserved? Um, So that's the main main reason that you'll see a, a, a little story like that. You'll also remember, hopefully you remember this map. Y'all, y'all will be good at this geography by the time we get through. You really are. You're, you're going to remember that Israel and Judah are at war with someone pretty much all the time. One of the dominant nations in the area is Aram, just northeast of Israel. The king of Aram in this story is not named. So we're going to call him Ben-Hadad. Because there was a whole dynasty of Ben-Hadads right around this time. And Hadad is the name of the Aramean god. And Ben means son in this language. So Ben-Hadad means son of God. And that's what they named their kings, Ben-Hadad this and Ben-Hadad that. At this particular time, Ben-Hadad is at war with Israel. The king of Israel is also not named in this story, but we're going to call him Joram because that's probably who is king at this moment. That's a best guess here. You know a lot about warfare in this region by now. um, So you know that military strategy always incorporates the advantages of the hills, the mountains, the valleys, that deep valley running down into the Jordan, um, the plains, the ravines, all the little rivers, uh, even the caves or the wells in the area. So selecting where you will camp and where you will fight is a big deal. Your choice of battlefield can make or break the outcome of your campaign. The problem is, Every time Ben-Hadad sets up camp, the king of Israel seems to already know he's going to be there, like he knows in advance. Ben-Hadad keeps trying to sneak up on Joram, but King Joram always knows he's coming. This totally ticks Ben-Hadad off. He calls all his officers onto the red carpet and demands to know who is leaking information to Israel. Finally, one brave soul speaks up and says, it's not us, my king. It's Elisha, the prophet, who tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your own bedroom. Wow. Of course, Ben-Hadad immediately orders Elisha to be found and captured. Spies scatter across the area. A report comes back. He is in Dothan. Now, that's a town about 12 miles north of Samaria, right on the way to Jezreel and Shunem. So that's a place that we know Elisha travels through frequently. It's unlikely he's inside the city walls. It's more likely he and his servant Gehazi are camped near the city. So Ben-Hadad sends horses and chariots and a strong force there, and they sneak up on Dothan by night and surround the city, apparently not knowing exactly where Elisha is, only that he's like in this area. When Gehazi, Elisha's servant, gets up the next morning and sees the Aramean army surrounding them, he says to Elisha, oh, my Lord, what are we going to do? 
And Elisha says, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prays, oh Lord, open Gehazi's eyes so he may truly see. And suddenly Gehazi can see the hills full of horses, and he can see chariots of fire all around Elisha. The heavenly hosts far outnumber the Arameans. As the Arameans begin to attack Dothan, Elisha prays, Lord, strike them with blindness. And the Arameans are thrown into confusion. The groping and panicked troops can neither move forward nor backward. When Elisha meets the troops fumbling along the road, he tells them they've surrounded the wrong city. He says, follow me and I will lead you to the man you are looking for. And he leads them right into the city of Samaria, the capital of Israel. There they are surrounded and brought before the king. Elisha prays, open their eyes, Lord. You can imagine the Arameans' consternation when they realize they've been tricked. King Joram says, should I kill them, Elisha? And Elisha says, no, do not kill them. They were captured as prisoners of war. Give them food and drink and send them back to their master. So King Joram prepares a great feast for the Aramean troops. And afterwards, they return to Aram and do not raid Israel's territory anymore. Needless to say, no Arameans come after Elisha anymore either. Israel's under control. So let's go see what's happening down in Judah. Jehoshaphat has been king in Judah for 25 years, and he's been mostly a good king. He dies in peace. Remember that King Jehoshaphat had made a marriage alliance long ago with Ahav, who was at the time king of Israel. Jehoshaphat had allowed his son Jehoram to marry Ahav's daughter, Athaliah, just bringing the doomed and wicked line of Ahav into his own bloodline. So this is like a really significant thing here. The bloodline of the kings of Israel and Judah are now joined and they are allied by marriage. Um, this is this is important. It is this son Jehoram who now succeeds Jehoshaphat as king in Judah. Jehoram is 32 years old. First rattle out of the box, Jehoram murders all six of his brothers along with various other princes of Judah, so there is no one to threaten his claim to the throne. So after 60 years of good kings in Judah, we now have a king in Judah who is as wicked as Ahav was in the northern kingdom of Israel. There's a very telling verse in 2 Chronicles 21.11. We're going to camp here for a second. He, and they're talking about Jehoram here, had also built high places on the hills of Judah and had caused the people of Jerusalem to prostitute themselves and had led Judah astray. Notice that when the Bible talks about prostitution in the context of high places, it can be physical prostitution as idol worship there did involve both male and female prostitutes. But idol worship is also seen by the Lord as spiritual prostitution. The Lord sees this idol worship as his people lusting after other gods. His, his betrothed, beloved, um, whoring with other lovers. The Lord is our lover. When you read verses about the Lord being a jealous God, this is what's being talked about. The Lord has gone to great lengths to love and protect and heal and provide for these people for hundreds and hundreds of years now. He's done everything possible to actually dwell among them and let them draw close to him. And they still turn their back on him and run to these idols and call them God. 
They give idols they built with their own hands credit for the things the Lord does for them. And they debase themselves before these idols. Back in class 31, we took a look at some of the imagery of prostitution in this context. It's going to start coming up more and more as the story of Israel and Judah accelerates to a climax. Nevertheless, the Lord does not immediately withdraw his protection from King Jehoram. Why not? It says, because the Lord is mindful of his promise to David that there will always be a descendant of David on the throne in Jerusalem. Eventually, of course, Jehoram is put to the test as the new king of Judah. The kingdom of Edom, there to the south, revolts against paying tribute to him. So Jehoram has to go to war with Edom. He ends up getting himself in a position where he's surrounded by enemy troops. He's able to escape during the night. But even though his life is saved, he loses control over Edom. When King Jehoram makes it back to his palace, he receives a letter from the old prophet Elijah. Elijah says, this is what the Lord says. Because you have not followed in the path of your father Jehoshaphat or your grandfather Asa, but have instead followed the ways of Ahav and have led the people to prostitute themselves, and because you murdered your own brothers, men who were better than you, the Lord is about to strike a heavy blow on your people, on you, your family, and everything that belongs to you, you yourself will develop a lingering illness, a disease that will cause you to be disemboweled. Ouch. And the Lord arouses the Philistines and the Cushites, Arabs living south of Judah, and they attack Judah and plunder it, carrying off all of King Jehoram's wives and all his sons except the youngest one. And after that, a terrible, painful, incurable disease of the bowels falls on King Jehoram. The disease wastes him for two long years. Finally, at the age of 40, he dies in excruciating pain, just as the Lord said. The record says he's buried in the city of David, but not in the tomb of the kings. The people do not build a funeral pyre in his honor, for his death, it says, is regretted by no one. That letter from Elijah to King Jehoram, speaking the word of the Lord to him, is the last we hear from Elijah. He's old, and all of the prophets across the country know he's about to die. In fact, when the day comes, the Lord tells all of the prophets that today's the day. You can imagine the stir this causes. On that day, Elijah and Elisha are traveling together, getting ready to leave Gilgal. And Elijah says, you stay here in Gilgal, Elisha, for the Lord is sending me to Bethel. But Elisha says, no, I will not leave your side. And so they travel on to Bethel. The company of prophets at Bethel come out to meet them and say to Elisha, you do know the Lord is going to take Elijah from you today, right? And Elisha says, yes, I know, but please don't talk about it. You can imagine how heartbroken he is. Again, Elijah says to Elisha, you, you stay here. The Lord is sending me to Jericho. But Elisha says, no, I will not leave you. And so they travel on to Jericho. This time, the company of prophets at Jericho comes out to meet them and says to Elisha, you do know that the Lord is going to take Elijah from you today, right? And Elisha says again, yes, I know, but please don't talk about it. And Elijah says to Elisha, you stay here in Jericho, 
the Lord is sending me down to the Jordan River. But Elisha says, no, I will never leave you. And so the two of them walk on. At this point, they're being followed by nearly 50 prophets, probably all those they've encountered on the way from Gilgal to Bethel to Jericho and now to the Jordan River. The 50 prophets are hanging back respectfully. As they watch, Elijah takes his cloak off, rolls it up and strikes the Jordan River with it. Immediately, the water divides and Elijah and Elisha cross over on dry land. After they've crossed, Elijah turns to Elisha and says, tell me, what can I do for you before I go? And Elisha says, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. And Elijah says, you have no idea what a difficult thing this will be to inherit. However, if you see me when I'm taken from you, it will be yours. Well, Elisha hadn't let Elijah out of his sight all day, so he's not about to do so now. The two men walk on. Suddenly, a chariot of fire appears. It's pulled by horses of fire, and it separates Elijah and Elisha. Elijah is taken up to heaven in a whirlwind, while Elisha cries, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha never sees Elijah again after that. Elisha tears his clothes and picks up the cloak that has fallen from Elijah. In great distress, he turns to go back across the Jordan, but when he gets there, the water is flowing again. Elisha takes the cloak, rolls it up, and cries, Now where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he strikes the Jordan with it, the water splits to the right and to the left. And Elisha crosses back alone on dry ground. The company of prophets who have been keeping watch marvel and say, surely the spirit of Elijah now rests on Elisha. And they go and bow to Elisha. Seeing his distress and hearing his story, they say, Perhaps the Lord just picked Elijah up and set him down on some mountain or in some valley somewhere. Let's send men to search for him. But Elisha says, no. Nevertheless, they insist. So finally, Elisha lets them send a search party out. And of course, they do not find Elijah, even though they search for him for three days. Right after this, the author of 2 Kings inserts two very weird little stories about Elisha. It's kind of like he has nowhere else to put these stories, so he puts them in here with no explanation at all. The first story, the men of a city come to Elisha because they have a good city with good land, but the spring water is so bad that the land is unproductive. And Elisha says, Bring me a new bowl, which the men do, of course. And Elisha goes out to the spring, throws some salt into it, saying, this is what the Lord says. I have healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. And to this day, the author says, the water has remained wholesome and good and um if you go back and, and look at this story, I think if you think it through, uh, think about where it is positioned in the greater context, um, what the significance of a new bowl might be, and what the significance of salt is. Um, throughout scripture, up to now, we've, we've uh, seen it used uh, to identify a special, especially important covenant, a salt, covenant of salt. Um, it's, it's something of extremely high value in this culture. Uh, it, it was used um, in trade. And I think you can, you will probably be able to see why this, the author put this story in here. We're going to skip the second story for now, because we're going to talk about it in our breakout groups in a minute. 
So now Elijah has been taken to heaven and Elisha is on his own. Joram is king in Israel and Jehoram, king of Judah, has died or is about to die of that terrible bowel disease. Also remember that the kings of Israel and Judah are not named here in this particular section of scripture. So I'm giving you my best guess as to who the players are um, in this next story. Uh, Obviously, when the Lord speaks to Jehoram um, or to Joram, they are named, but some of these random battle stories, it just says king of Israel or king of Judah or king of Aram, that kind of thing. The king that is named in this next story is Ben-Hadad, king of Aram. The Arameans were the ones that Elisha struck blind a bit ago, and they had all returned to Aram and supposedly never attacked Israel again. Well, as you might expect, that peace was short-lived. Ben-Hadad is back with his armies, and he's laid a long siege against Samaria, the capital of Israel. The siege lasts something like seven years. It lasts so long that the city runs out of food entirely. A donkey's head, which you can imagine would be pretty much inedible, sells for about two pounds of silver. And bird dung is sold as food. King Joram is out pacing high along the city walls one day when a woman calls up to him. Help me, my lord, the king. And the king says, it will have to be the Lord who helps you, for I cannot. What's the matter? And the woman says, we are starving. My neighbor said to me, let's kill and eat your son. And then tomorrow we will kill and eat my son. And so we killed and ate my son. But now she's hidden her son away so we cannot eat him. Hearing this, the king tears his clothes and cries, I swear by this time tomorrow I will have the head of Elisha. Well, obviously, King Joram thinks it's all Elisha's fault that Israel is suffering this dreadful famine that it has nothing to do with his own wickedness and his own choices. And it's clearly also Elisha's fault that the Lord isn't rescuing them from this siege. At least that's how King Joram sees it. King Joram sends a messenger to fetch Elisha and then decides to just go after him himself. When the king arrives at Elisha's house, Elisha says, this is what the Lord says, by this time tomorrow, Flour and barley will be sold cheap in the city gates. The officer who is with the king snorts with laughter and says, yeah, right. Even if the Lord opened up the floodgates of heaven, this would not be possible. And Elisha says to him, you will see it happen with your own eyes, but you will not eat any of the food. Wow. How in the world can this happen? People are literally eating each other. There are no crops to give the, the grain. How can the Lord do the impossible and flood the city with flour and barley in just 24 hours? Remember what the Lord said in our last lesson? To you, it looks impossible, but to the Lord, this is easy. Here's how it happened. There are four lepers sitting at Samaria's gate, basically just waiting to starve to death. They figure they've got nothing to lose by crossing the siege lines and surrendering to the Arameans. So they get up and trudge out across the dusty landscape. When they finally reach the Aramean camp, they find it completely deserted. There is not a soul there. The Lord has caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses of a great army bearing down on them. They think King Joram has hired an army of mercenaries and Egyptian kings to attack them. So they fled into the dusk, leaving all their tents and horses and donkeys and belongings and food behind. The lepers can't believe their good luck. They go from tent to tent, eating and drinking and gathering loot. 
they hide some of the loot and then get to thinking, you know, this isn't right. We better go tell someone the good news before we get caught and get punished for keeping this to ourselves. So they go back to the city and call out to the gatekeepers, who then go report it to the palace guards, who then awaken the king in the middle of the night. Now, the king and his officers suspect an Aramean trick. So they find a few horses somewhere, hook them up to a couple of chariots, and send men to investigate. The men track the Aramean army from the camp by following the trail of clothing and equipment the Arameans have scattered in their haste to flee the imaginary army they heard bearing down on them. The king's men return to Samaria and give the good news to the king and the people. All the people rush out to the Aramean camp and plunder it. And so it comes to pass that day that flour and barley are sold cheap in the city gates of Samaria. The officer who had scoffed at Elisha sees this, for the king had stationed him at the city gate. But he never gets to eat because the people trample him to death in their haste to get to the food. And so the word of the Lord is fulfilled exactly as it was spoken by Elisha. What a story. Remember the Shunammite woman whose son Elisha raised from the dead? Well, when this whole siege started, Elisha had warned her to take her family and flee. So she went down to the land of the Philistines to live. At the end of seven years, when the siege is lifted, she returns and petitions the king to give her her land back. The king just happens to be talking to Gehazi, Elisha's servant, when the Shunammite woman comes in and Gehazi had just been telling the king the story of her son. So the king asks her to tell her story. And when it matches what Gehazi had said, the king orders not only all her land and property be restored, but also all her lost income. As an aside, I find it very interesting that this woman's husband never figures at all in any of her story except in fathering her child. It is one of the few times in scripture where it is the man who is ghosted. We'll stop there for today. In our breakout groups, we're going to talk about that little story about Elisha that I skipped earlier. It's a very distinct disturbing little story that's almost always skipped over in Bible studies. It's found in 2 Kings 2, 26 and 27. I mean, it's like two whole verses. Um, and and here's, here's what it says. It says, he, Elisha, went up from there to Bethel. And while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him saying, go away, bald head, go away, bald head. And when he turned around and saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. Then two she-bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. Now, that seems incomprehensible. Why in the heck is that story in the Bible? So in our um, breakout session, we're going to pull out our backpack tools and see what we can find. And let's see, it looks like we've got a small enough group to stay together. And um, we'll go through this. It, I don't, did anybody get a chance to do any of it in advance? Oh, me 30 this minutes. It's gonna be fun. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So the first thing you do when you come to a story like that is you get out your study Bible, okay? And you look at the fine print in the notes at the bottom and see what if there's any hints down there. Now you take you have to take those with a grain of salt, just like you have to take everything with a grain of salt, including what I say. But um, my, my study Bible says um, that
that Elisha's uh, curse is uh, a warning of the judgment that would come on the entire nation as a result of their disobedience, and that this would be an indicative of his ministry, um, that God's covenant blessings will come to those who look to God, but his curses will fall on those who turn away from him. So basically, my Bible is saying, the scholars in, in, who wrote the footnotes to my Bible are saying they think this is an allegory and stand in for Israel, okay, and how Israel sees God. So that's valid. That's valid. Your, any of your Bibles say something different there? Um, mine, yeah, mine says... Um... A demonstration of the danger in behaving disrespectfully toward a man of God. 42 boys. 42 is a number sometimes associated with death. Jehu kills 42 victims in um, 2 Kings 10.14. And the Egyptian Book of the Dead mentions 42 judges of the dead. Interesting. That's interesting. Okay. So good information. So the next thing you do, so we, we're just like, we're, we're, this is like doing a brainstorm, all right? We're just, we're just whiteboarding this. So we're gathering information together. So that's some information. The next thing you want to do is check the context of the verse itself. So if you get your Bible out and turn to 2 Kings chapter 2, this particular story is at the very end of the chapter. The, the next chapter starts talking about a different king and a different war, a different location, different everything, okay? So clearly, this story does not relate to the very next verse or anything that comes after it, okay? So this verse is the end, a, a parenthetical end of some other story. So, so we need to back up and see where that story started. So if we start backing up, the story that comes right before it is where Elisha threw that salt into the water. Remember? Okay. So both of these stories seem to have something to do with Elisha being special, right? And if we back back up, the thing that came just before that was Elijah's death and the double portion of Elijah's spirit passing to Elisha. Ah, starting to come a little more in focus here, right? And um, then if we back all the way up, that was chapter two. If we back up to chapter one, again, it's talking about a different king, a different story entirely. So this cycle is chapter two as a unit. These two stories have something to do with Elisha becoming... Um, successor of Elijah and the double portion of the Lord's spirit falling on him. Okay. So I just want to say, I think the mauling of 42 boys is horrific. And, you know, I, I, I am sincerely hoping this is not intended to be taken literally. And, um, <laughs> but we're, we're going to hold an open mind. We're going to see, see what happens here. Any comments so far? My study bible says that they think the age of the people uh that they were actually just under 40 ah, instead of so being they were, kids quote, young men as opposed to young yeah. boys or a younger generation of the the people um because they said that the same word has been used before um in the bible to mean young men well that's interesting let's take a look at that real quick i'm going to share my screen and pull up um, see, I'm going to share my desktop with you. Hopefully it's not too cluttered and I'm going to pull up. Uh, no, I don't want to end the meeting. Um, I want to pull up, oops, I'm going to pull up my own Bible software that I would use here. And I would first go in, this is eSword. So I would just pick a version. Okay. And then I would go find this verse, which is in 2 Kings in chapter 2. And this particular verse with the boys, what verse is that? 23. 23. 
23. Okay, let's go to verse 23. Takes me right there. He went up to Bethel, and as he was going on the way, some small boys came out of the city. So I click on the verse, and now I'm going to switch my uh, from the NRSV, I'm going to switch to a version of the Bible I've lo- loaded that has a little plus sign after it, which is means it has the strong number, Strong's numbers. So it's not something you would want to read in, but when you want to look up words, it's really helpful. So as he was going up by the way, young lads. So it's actually two different, two different words being used here. Let's look up the word lads. I click on this H. 5288 and kind of scroll down and it says na'ar. That is a very common word meaning boy, lad, servant, youth, retainer. It's it's it is translated boys, child, lad, occasionally young men, but it's definitely means youthful. Okay. So then I'm going to go back and um, this young here. So it's actually two words meaning young, young men. But the first word means small, young, and unimportant. The smallest of the small. So I think I would take issue with um, the note in your Bible, Renee. It, it, it sounds to me like this. Um, is really talking about young, insignificant, youthful boys. All right, so now the next thing that we would do is, let me look what I asked them calling him baldy and stuff indicates, you know, they seem to be immature. Absolutely. And also think about what baldness, I'm going to unshare my screen so we can see each other for a second. Um, Think about what does baldness mean in the context of this culture? What does a man's hair mean? Where have we seen hair used? Several times. Think about it. Being short, their, their strength, their virality masculinity and prophets not cutting their their hair yes the nazarites remember them where they would take a vow and not cut their hair it's a sign of devotion to god ultra devotion to god so wouldn't you think that elisha who has gone bald prematurely he clearly is not the norm feels self-conscious about this And wouldn't you think that people would make fun of him as being not manly and not really a prophet and et cetera? You can just hear it, can't you? So interesting. That's a great point, Julia. All right. So the next thing we would do as we're looking at our scripture here is we've already put a parentheses around chapter two and said, this is the body of the story. Do you see any evidence in this story of a chiasm? Is this story, hi Ross, is this story X-shaped in any way? Do you see things happening at the beginning that are also happening at the end? I don't know. Those elude me. <laughs> is it? Are you talking about in verse 23 where it says he went up from there to Bethel and then at the end he says he went on to Mount Carmel and then returned to Samaria, which sounds like a return trip from where he it, it went does. with Elijah? You know, that would be something to look at. Usually you'll see a repetition of places or people or events. Okay. And in this story, the story starts out and it's just Elijah's going to die today. They travel from this place to 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 this place. Water parts. Elijah is taken up to heaven. Elisha goes back. Water parts. And then we have these two miracle stories about Elisha. And I'm like, I'm not seeing an X shape here. Are you all? I'm not seeing any repetitions. 
The other thing to look, so I, I like took chiasm off the list here. Unless you see something that I don't see in there. You know, Marlene was on exactly the right track. That's what you're looking for, you know. Um, but there were, you know, if you find one, you ought to find another one inside of it and another one inside of it and another one inside of it. Okay. Um, so then uh, water, the first, uh, the first two were crossing water. The mm -hmm. second, the third one was, um, the first story of this group was purifying water. Very interesting. That's the only other thing I picked. Yep. Very interesting. So it might be worth going back and looking at how water divides the story up, you know, um, and what's in between it. Because because the first before you get to the the first water is the get tra Elijah and Elisha traveling through the the countryside. You know, the Lord telling and gathering the prophets, the Lord spirit is moving through the countryside to say, well, Elijah will be taken. Then you cross the water. Then Elijah is taken. Elisha becomes his successor. Okay. He's all alone at that point. Cross the water. Then you have really... No, nothing happens at that point. They are looking all around for Elijah. Where's Elijah? We can't do without Elijah. Without Elijah, it's, it's almost as if Elijah is not good enough for them, like he's being rejected, right? Um, not overtly, but God, we got to go find Elijah, even if it takes us three days and we have to search all the rivers and the valleys, you know? So, so then the next water is the story of the salt and the new bowl. And it seems as if that third division of the story is all about validating Elisha, right? And that's where this story of the bears falls. So Renee's suggestion there is, is excellent. That's the kind of thing you're looking for. It helps you divide the story. Uh, you, you are seeing the literary bones of the story and what the author is doing with them. Okay. So whenever you get to some bizarro passage, <laughs> don't panic. Don't panic. Step away from your Bible. And take, a, take a look, you know, and use these tools in your backpack. This is great. Y'all are doing so great. So the next thing we do is um, we also look for whether it's an intercalation. We haven't talked about those as much in class, but the intercalation is the Oreo. That's where you have one story. That's the, the chocolatey part. That, and that story starts. And then this other story sticks in the middle. And then the first story finishes. Okay. But that doesn't seem to be what's happening in this chapter. Right. This does not, this is not an intercalation. So we don't got no, no Oreos today. And then the, the another thing that is in your toolbox is to look for the phrase, I am the Lord. Remember how that phrase is used. And I had you go through your whole Bible and circle it and mark it so that when you come to it, you notice it. And it's, it's not in here. So there's no marker, literal marker that says, look here, this is the important part. <laughs> So it's, it's like there's no yellow sticky on this, in this one. All right. So the, the, the next thing we would do is we would go and look up unusual words. So I'm going to, um, again, share my screen, show you how I do that. Uh, would you all um, prefer that I do it this time instead of doing it in my eSword software that I do it on the online version um, where you just go to like Bible Hub and do this, would that be helpful? Okay, it'll give you a choice. Esword, uh, I'll share my screen. I'll show you how easy it is in the Esword, and then then I'll let you. So if I, you should now see my screen again. We're still in the same verse, um, but this time we uh, we already talked about bald head, and if you look up what that word means, it means bald head. So we already talked about what that meant. It's in verse 24, that next verse, 
that something really sticks out to me. We talked about the 42. But what sticks out to me is the two female bears. The female, we don't, how often do we run across female bears? Every time in, else in scripture that we run across it, some, some animal attacking somebody, it's the lions, remember? It's always some lion coming out and attacking them. This time it's female bears. What in the world does that mean? So I, I can look up the word by clicking on it. And this first part is the ancient Hebrew hieroglyphs says the pictograph for this is the picture of a tent door. The place was a place of relaxation. Um, so it means this word can mean slow, grieve, mourn, rest, sorrow, and bear. And bear, if you look, number 1677 is the word used here. These other meanings are related by, in their roots to that word, but they're other numbers. So H1727, H1679. The word in use here is H1677, which means bear, but it is a bear as a slow moving animal. Okay. So you can see that it's related in, in its roots to sorrow. And we also, we often talk in English about bears lumbering, you know, so it, it's that kind of root. But then you get into the, you know, the main um, dictionaries, uh, Brown Driver Briggs, New American um, Strong's, Strong's is a gold standard. And they all just say that word means bear. That's all it means. It just means bear, as in slow, bear. So nothing special to see here. Um, so then I wonder, well, how is that word used in scripture? Well, then I right click this and say search on every time that word is used and let me see it. And it comes back and it tells me there's that word is used in 12 verses. So the first verse is when um, David is talking to Saul and he's talking about being a shepherd and protecting his flocks from lions and bears. Okay, that's not helpful. The next verse is where uh, he's still talking to Saul and he's still talking about how he killed lions and bears and it was God who did it. And he's still talking about God doing that. That's all the same passage. All right, so then we come to this different passage in 2 Samuel and it says that mighty men, warriors, are fierce like a bear robbed of her cubs. Okay, so that's helpful. Bear robbed of her cubs would be a she-bear robbed of her cubs, mighty men, warriors. So then we get to the one we're looking at. This is the actual verse we're in, so we're going to skip that one. In Proverbs, it says, it's better for a man to meet a bear robbed of her cubs than a fool in his folly. Okay, there's another bear robbed of her cubs. In Proverbs 28, um, like a wicked ruler is like a roaring lion and a rushing bear. Okay, so that doesn't tell us anything about whether it's a she-bear or a he-bear. And we're really particularly looking for she-bears. In Isaiah, the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. So this is like the flip side. This is the she-bear, I mean, because it's a she-bear because her young is referred to here. So this is a she-bear referred to in her unnatural state where she would lie down with cows. So it's kind of the exception that proves the rule that she-bears she are understood to be fierce. In Isaiah, all of us growl like bears and moan like doves, and it doesn't say what kind of bear, so that one's not helpful. Uh, lamentations, he is to me like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in secret. That's not helpful, doesn't talk about she-bears. Hosea, I will encounter them like a bear robbed of her cubs. There it is again, third time. And then the, the last one is... Um, when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him or goes home and leans his hand against a wall and a snake bites him, that's talking about a man who's having a bad day. So that's not helpful. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I guess so. 
<laughs> so, so we have really the, the three or four times, if you take the exception, the opposite one, that we see she bears specifically referred to, it is as being ferocious in protecting her cubs. That gives us a little insight into this passage. Not only did one she bear come out and maul those boys, two she bears came out to maul those boys. So who, yeah. I have a question. Mine just says the two bears came out of the woods. Is it implied they're she bears because a male bear would not tolerate being around another bear? Um, we are taking, hang on, let me pull that thing up again. Let's take a look at it. Back to my Bible. I'm just looking at it. My, my version says she bears. My version says two female bears. Um, and so they are getting that. They're going to be getting that. And so I'm going to show you this. Okay. I'm going to share my screen again. This is second. Pronouns of she and her. That well, they're going to be getting it from the ending of the word, from the grammatical structure of the word. I'm going to share my screen with you again. Pull up my. I have to move this so I can see it. Um, I'm going to go to BibleHub.com. I'm going to type in Second Kings. Uh, two. It's twenty-four. We're in, right? Yes. Okay. And it pulls up, if you can see, 2 Kings 2.24. But I want to see it in the Hebrew. So I'm going to go up here and click Hebrew. If you look at Bible Hub, you've got like a zillion different versions, translations that you can look any verse up in. You just click on them and it comes up. But then this gray bar is the special stuff. So you can look up Strong's, you can look up Interlinear, you can look up Commentaries. You can look up Hebrew. I'm going to look up the Hebrew. And then there's this third strip where you can look up original language kind of stuff. Like these are the LXX is the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament. And you can get all kinds of information here for free at BibleHub.com. It's one of uh, several services like this. So I've pulled up the verse. I'm going to click Hebrew because I want to see the Hebrew details. And the way it shows up is in a table. So the way the table reads is the verse reads, it has English in one column. It shows the actual Hebrew word as it appears. It shows how to pronounce it. And then it, it shows the strong number, which I can hover over or click on to see the definition. So I'm going to scroll down to the one I want to know. And the female bears, the reason it is female is because it is a feminine plural form of the word, which I can see by looking at the part of speech over here to the right. You see that? Oh, okay. So it is because of the way this word is formed in the Hebrew that we know it is a female um, bear. And I can go just like I did on my um, software that I've downloaded. I can click on number 1677. I can see the Strong's definition. I can see the Concordance definition. I can see the Brown Dryer, Driver Briggs definition. And it actually shows me that it's, it's used in the masculine and in the feminine. It's rarely used in the feminine. And an example of when it's used in the feminine is the very verse we're looking at. And then over, and then over on the right, they will show, they will have like a whole list of snippets of the different um, verses that that word is used in exactly like I did in my, you know, it pulls up the same 12 scriptures. Okay. There's Hosea, there's Amos, and you can click on any of those to go see that verse. Once you get to that verse, you could click on it as say, I want to see it in the NIV. I don't really want to see the whole Hebrew. I want to see it in its context. It will take you there. If, and if you get lost, you just hit the back button on your browser to get back to where you are. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Absolutely. So super, super easy. This is, this is 
why I put these tools out there for you to use and do little, there's little videos, even in the study guide, there's a video showing you how to do it. So armed with this information, all of this information, the context, um, how it appears in the story, where it appears in the story, what do we think about these two, about the female bears coming out and mauling the boys when they make fun of Elisha? Who, who, who is the cub here? Elisha. Yeah. Elisha. And who is the female bear representing? God. I would think so. Right. And it's a story of protection. Um, it's a story of Elisha is, you are ridiculing him for not having hair. And I am showing you, it doesn't matter <laughs> that he has no hair. This is my prophet. Why two bears? He has a double portion. There you go. Uh-huh. <laughs> Isn't that cool? Fabulous. Isn't that cool? I mean, I, that just grin from <laughs> ear to ear. That's the stuff just like floats my boat. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so accessible. And you have the tools in your backpack to be able to do this. You can do this. Do not let a weird, bizarre story frighten you. Stay grounded in in your knowledge of who the Lord is and how the Lord wants to relate to his people. Stay grounded in that. That's the most important thing. The rest of this stuff is a matter of having the tools, doing the research, understanding the context, and sometimes putting it on a shelf and saying, Lord, you're going to have to send me some more info on that one (laughs) because I still don't get it. And uh, let's see. What else? You say at the bottom of the page, you laugh when Gail tells you what the early Jewish rabbi thought of this. Oh, yes. This is hilarious. So, I thought it was two bears because they called a bald twice. <laughs> I you thought it was because it was the Holy Spirit and the Lord. Well, that could be too. That all works. Um, and Renee, what did you? What were you missing? Uh, you're on mute. Uh, unmute, Renee, so we can hear you. I'm sorry. Uh, it says that. In um, the same Hebrew word describes Reboam's peers in 1 Kings 12, 8, which refers to young men that are over 40. So this is probably a group of young teens. Gotcha. But I just uh, and, it could, and it could be there. And what they're saying there is that they did the same kind of word search we just did on the word for young men, you know, or young boys here. And they said, well, we see that same two words or same phrase for used in the context of young men. So you can use it as young men, you see? But now you know where they're getting that from, right? You're you're empowered, girl. (laughs) (laughs) So here's what the deal is with the rabbis. This cracks me up. They read this story as a brutal story that makes no sense whatsoever. And according to the Hebrew scholar, Robert Alter, the early Jewish rabbis were so outraged by this story that they insisted it never happened. And it became customary to say, well, neither bears nor forest, whenever someone heard a tall tale. (laughs) I have a question about the number 42, because that seems like an awful lot of kids. 
Um, yeah. You, I mean, I can see like maybe 12 at yeah. the very most. Yes. I mean, how did the, how would you even get 42? Yes. Which gets back to what I think some, a couple of y'all were saying that the number 42, was that you, Marlene, talking about? 42? Yeah. To repeat yeah. what you said, because I completely agree with Julie that 42 makes it sound like, no, no. Well, clearly this story means something. It's not a literal event. Yeah. When I, when I first read it, I thought, how could 42 boys hang around long enough to be mauled by two bears? <laughs> you know, that didn't make sense to me either. Um, they just but, laid but, down. I thought maybe two or four, but the other 38 would have run away. Um, but here it says, um, let's see, second two, 24. Um, let me find that again. Um, yeah, um, 42 boys. 42 is a number sometimes associated with death. In, uh, ten, in uh, chapter 10, verse 14, Jehu kills 42 victims. And the Egyptian Book of the Dead mentions 42 judges of the dead. So it's like a number that has a significance. So it's they were also really dead. It's also, I will point out, the number 40 plus 2. And 40 mm-hmm. in the Bible means a lot. That's all that number means. You hear 40, it means a lot. And 2 has a special significance in this story. Two boys, two extra boys, two female bears. Also, 42 is a multiple of 7, it which is. is considered a holy number. A perfect, it's it's the completion, perfection, and the number six is often associated with man. But I think, I thought it was interesting too when it says, and mauled 42, uh, in in the NIV, it says 42 of the youths, which to me indicates, having been an English major, that there were more than 42. It could be. So I'm like... Hebrew doesn't have the word of in it. So that is an understood word and is is filled in when we translate to English. So it may or may not mean that. Especially when originally it's some youths. And I don't remember who it was that said, I mean, you know, some, some to me indicates, eh, you know, maybe half a dozen. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's not a whole squad, so to yeah. speak. Exactly. Well, there was a, ma- a, a, a a passel of them. There were. There were. So it's just wonderful what you can mine out of these out of these stories when you understand the context and understand what you're doing and aren't threatened by the words on the page. That is so at least my- when you explain it to us. <laughs> It just takes practice. See, I'm I'm showing you how to do it. We're doing it over and over as we go. You're a whole lot better at looking at context than you were when we started. You're beginning to get a grasp of how to understand the footnotes in your Bible. You're beginning to see how easy it is to actually look up some of this stuff when you have a question about it. Um, this will become easier as we go along. And we're coming to... Um, where this cycle of stories about Elijah and Elisha are the opening of the end of the story. This is where the Lord sends the big guns because the Lord's running out of patience here. And uh, unfortunately, neither Elijah nor Elisha, their school of prophets did not anything they wrote down has not been preserved for us. We don't have any of their writings. I think part of that is because they were so early on before the, the cataclysm um, and that the, we are about to get the whole for the next starting probably not next week, but the next every story we do will have a big component of profit in it. 
Um, we will begin pulling in all the prophets that are there in, in, the, in the Hebrew scripture uh, because God sends prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet to every single king, to all the people. And uh, the closer we get to the cataclysm, the more really the more major these prophets get. And they're major because the closer they are to the cataclysm, they're pro- the prophets that are their schools pass through the cataclysm. And on the other side, they realize that they need to write the story down. So they write it down. Up to that point, no one knew it needed to be being written down. So we have a whole lot less. So it's not that those major prophets are that much more major than any of the ones that they came before. It's just that they happened closer to the cataclysm. And so we will begin, not next week, but the next, with the first uh, prophet uh, that I'm going to pull out for you and begin to see the Lord's message to his people. I'm excited. (laughs)